The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is my honor to welcome my guest, Ms. Leslie Sobel. She is a member of the Impact Justice Team. She joined the organization in the fall of 2018 as a research fellow for the Food in Prison Project. Ms. Sobel is an educator and ethnographer. She is the founder and artistic director of Story Soup, a project that creates context for dialogue across cultural and generational borders through food and narrative. Her academic research focuses on food as a cultural text, aesthetic domain, and site of performance. Ms. Sobel currently serves as a teaching artist with various Washington, D.C.-based arts programs. She also has over a decade of experience designing and facilitating cultural competency workshops to explore identity, systems of oppression, and intercultural, intergenerational communication. Ms. Sobel holds a BA in Gender Studies from Brown University, where her course of study focused on grassroots movements for social change. She received her Master's of Arts in Cultural Sustainability with a focus on the intersection of foodways, narrative theory, and social practice art from Goucher College that's based in Baltimore, Maryland. Welcome, Leslie. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I became aware of the research that Impact Justice was doing looking at food in prisons. And I'm very much interested in that because it is a hidden, secretive kind of parallel universe that most of us are unaware of. And the executive summary of your final report, Eating Behind Bars, if people just want to take a quick snapshot, I'll provide a link to the full report, of course. But the executive summary really makes it clear that this is the most comprehensive review of food in prisons to date. Tell me, what led you to this field of research? Why did you become interested in food in prison? So personally, I'm an ethnographer who focuses on food and culture. And several years back when I was in grad school, I remember having a sort of offhand conversation with one of my classmates about, you know, oh, food is such a huge part of our identity and how we communicate with other people and interact with other people. And it would be really fascinating to look at how people do that when they're incarcerated and only have prison food to work with. And then I sort of threw that into the long list of projects that maybe someday one would get to. Fast forward a couple of years later, and I saw a posting on idealist.org for this organization that was trying to start a study of food in prisons and the impacts on people's physical health. And I remember thinking, hmm, that's really interesting. And what if we also looked at food and mental health and food and the ways that we interact with others and food and sense of self-worth and, you know, all of these other various aspects. And so that's how I ended up with Impact Justice. Well, you were recently featured in a webinar that gave an overview of the project's work. And I was so impressed with the way you described food 
as being such a powerful tool, not only in mental and physical health, but maybe we take for granted the settings in which we eat. And we take for granted maybe that we have nice lighting in our kitchens and we have maybe some mood music if we want to have a nice meal, maybe some candlelight. And then you also described how anxiousness or anticipation of an event or trauma could impact the way we digest and absorb nutrients. And all of this, of course, is true, and we've got lots of data to support it. But you folded that into this report, and I think it's an important take-home message for all of our listeners to realize just how dehumanizing food in prison is. Why don't you tell me a little bit about some of your overall reflections of what you've learned during this project? Personally, I have learned so much through this project. I think having not really worked in the justice space before, I think this for me has deepened my understanding of the ways in which we dehumanize people and the ways in which incarceration is supposed to serve to make our society safer, but it actually doesn't. And it actually does the opposite. It causes significantly more harm, especially to communities that are already marginalized. And this report, this whole process of research and really engaging with this project, I think brought all of that home and how food is used as a tool to continue to punish people and to continue to harm people rather than being used as a tool for addressing that harm or a tool for really encouraging people to re-enter their communities in a positive way. Yeah, it's so interesting because if you pass by a correctional facilities or rehabilitation facilities, you know, you see those words on the sign and you think, well, certainly a healthy diet would be part of rehabilitation or part of quote unquote corrections. When in fact, on the webinar, you actually had an individual who had been in prison for, I believe it was a couple of decades. And he described how ill he became. And of course, if you look at the food quality, it's not a surprise. In my own evaluation of just one set of county jail menus, it became crystal clear to me that the food is too low in fiber, too high in sodium, maybe inadequate in calories in some places and higher in calories than it should be in other places. Tell me about food quality in general. What were your observations? So there are a number of different levels when we talk about food quality. There's first the basic sensory quality of the food, which includes, does it look good? Does it smell good? Does it taste good? And the overwhelming response to those questions that we received from folks who had been incarcerated was, no, it's awful. It's unpalatable. In a lot of cases, people couldn't actually eat the food or they had to force themselves to choke down the food simply because they were starving. So when we're talking about that kind of quality, the quality in prisons is not good. On the next level, there is the nutritional quality of food. And as you mentioned, the food in, in correctional facilities tends to be very high in sodium, high in sugar, low in fiber. There's not a lot of food that's providing solid nutrition. There aren't a lot of things that are nutrient dense. There aren't fresh fruits and vegetables, quality proteins. It's very carb heavy. And a lot of 
facilities or even some of the dietitians working in corrections will say, well, we do meet certain health guidelines. We do have the appropriate amounts of calories or the appropriate amounts of vitamin C in each, you know, in each meal. But first of all, those amounts are planned for menus. They're not necessarily what shows up in every meal after food has been sitting in storage for months or potentially years and after it's been reheated multiple times. And on the same topic, when you're looking at nutritional quality, it's not just about the the actual nutrients that are in the food, but about what the food is. You know, as a dietitian, I'm sure you would never recommend to someone to get all of their nutrition and their nutrients from supplements or from a multivitamin. It's really about having that fresh food and those other substances like fiber and different phytochemicals and things that are in food that actually helps keep us healthy. Exactly. And it was Sam Lewis who was a part of the webinar who had been in prison for a couple of decades. And he said that for a time he worked in the kitchen and there were bags of food labeled not for human consumption that were served to the prisoners. How is that even legal? That's an excellent question and one that we have asked ourselves many times. We've had so many people tell us that they were asked to serve food that was labeled not for human consumption. And some of it was meat, you know, beef or chicken. Some of it was grain. Someone sent a response to the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee did a survey about food a few years back. And someone wrote in, you know, on the oatmeal, it has a picture of the head of a horse and says not for human consumption. So I guess one is meant to assume that this is animal feed rather than food meant for humans. And someone told us that they saw cartons of eggs that had stenciled on the side for prison use only, which also, you know, makes you question about the same as not fit for human consumption. Why are these particular eggs for prison use only? Hmm. And there are prisons that have gardens associated with them. So you'd think that would be a good thing because it would lower the cost of food for the prison and improve the food quality. And in some cases it works that way, but it looks like in the majority it doesn't. Yeah, there are a number of prisons that do have garden programs where the people who actually work in those gardens are not permitted to eat the food. And some of that is because the harvest is too small, so they can't actually equally proportion it out through the meals. Some of it is because there are laws in particular states or jurisdictions stating that if food has not gone through a certain kind of inspection process, then it can't be used in a correctional facility. So there are garden programs that aren't actually serving to get more fresh food into those facilities. And then on the other hand, there are places that have gardens or farms where the food does go into the facilities, but at the same time, the incarcerated people who are working those gardens and farms aren't actually getting paid a fair wage or they're not getting paid at all. In my experience in reviewing some county jail food and talking to the corporate dietitians who were working in those food processors, I guess, that specifically focus on providing food for prisons, I think that those dietitians recognized that the food was not consistent with the dietary guidelines, but they also realized that they needed to rubber stamp what was going on. And that, as you mentioned, that the prisoners would get like a packet 
of vitamins. It's like a fruit flavored mix that they'd stir into water to get all the nutrients that they needed, supposedly. There was also this impression that I got that, well, the people were in prison. They didn't have to be there. So there wasn't a great level of remorse about the food quality. It seemed like it was just part of the punishment. So it was okay. You know, what was I worried about? Yeah, unfortunately, that tends to be a common response of the the whole idea of, well, you know, people didn't have to commit crime, so they didn't have to go to prison. But prisons don't exist in a vacuum and causing harm doesn't exist in a vacuum either. And we have to look at the bigger picture of where the people who are feeding into prisons and jails, what kinds of communities are these people coming from? They're coming from communities where their basic needs, often including sufficient food, are not being met. And so those people who are incarcerated are also going back out into those communities again. And if we're not sending them back out in better physical and mental condition than they went in, then what are we really doing? Exactly. Well, this is a six-part report, and I am looking at part four right now, the prison food machine. And this is an excellent expose of budgets and where the dollars go. So one of the images here is a graph of sorts that shows the food budget as a proportion of Department of Corrections spending. 4% of the budget goes to food service, but 21% goes to medical and mental health care and 43% goes to security operations. It seems second nature to me, maybe it's because I am a dietitian, that food is absolutely connected to medical and mental health care costs and needs, as well as behavior. Is that not commonly understood among prison authorities? I don't think it is on the same level. We heard from a lot of correctional officers and agency leaders that oh, good food is really important because if you have unhappy people because the food isn't good, then they're likely to riot. So we need to make sure the food is good. So there's that basic understanding of it, but I think the deeper impacts on physical and mental health and on behavior, that knowledge just isn't necessarily there. And one of the things that I think we're trying to do with this report and with our larger interactions with folks as part of the Food in Prison Project is to really foster some dialogue around that and say, look, you know, here, maybe this research hasn't all been done in correctional facilities, but here are all of these ways in which what we eat actually impacts not just our physical bodies, but also impacts things like our abilities to make decisions and our impulse control and whether or not we behave in an aggressive or violent manner whether or not we're able to focus, all of these things are impacted by food. And I think, yeah, the awareness of food and its relationship to trauma and food and its relationship to substance use, these things are not commonly known, I think, amongst a lot of correctional staff. Mm -hmm. Leslie, let me take one break because we're halfway through and just remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Leslie Sobel. She is a member of Impact Justice, and she is the lead author of an excellent comprehensive report about food in prison. And I will provide a link to it as well as a link to the webinar where she was featured describing it. The name of the report is titled Eating Behind Bars. Well, there are some examples, very few, but still some examples where 
you've got somebody in charge who recognizes the connection between food and physical and mental health. And I want to just bring forth one gentleman, Mark McBride, who is at the Mountain View Correctional Facility in Maine. He also happens to be an organic farmer, and he's been able to bring higher quality food into the food service. And he actually saw a savings and he saw the savings in waste hauling fees, believe it or not, right? Do you know if he also looked at any kind of decline in healthcare costs? I don't actually know. To my knowledge, not officially, but I can certainly ask him and follow up with you. Well, my thinking is a lot of times, I mean, there are food safety issues and your report makes it clear that the majority of people surveyed for this report did say that they received spoiled and rotten and moldy food. So I'm sure from a food safety perspective, there are acute results from eating a poor diet. But these chronic conditions that result from a poor diet, it's not as easy to count that because it might be that you're eating a poor diet that's high in sodium. And yes, it might cause a fairly rapid increase in blood pressure. But in terms of looking at cardiac or a heart attack, say, or cancer, those kinds of results take a few more years to surface. So it might be a hard number to tap. Absolutely. I think part of what we were trying to do when we were looking into this issue for the report was get information and get statistics about that. And unfortunately, they just don't exist yet. No one is tracking this. No one is tracking specifically how the food impacts healthcare costs. And research has been done around that outside of correctional facilities. And everything shows when you provide people with a better diet, with fresh fruits and vegetables and quality protein and a diet that's low in sodium and sugar and trans fats and refined carbs, when people are eating well, healthcare costs just plummet. And so there's no reason to think that that would be any different for people who are in a correctional facility. The way that your body reacts to food doesn't change just because you're in prison. So yeah, I absolutely think that there would be huge healthcare savings by providing people with a much better diet, a diet that's actually nutrient dense and actually healthy. But unfortunately, the, the research just doesn't exist yet. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting because I think that taxpayers need to understand that those health-related costs are really passed on to us. So I think it behooves all of us to care about this issue. One of the statistics that I pulled from your report was that 94% of prisoners reported that they did not have enough food to eat. So they were hungry. And there's this term that is used that a lot of us have probably felt called hanger, which is the anger that is related to hunger. So there again, we have that behavioral component. So what is available to prisoners outside of the food service then is the food in the commissary. And I'm sure there are a few corporate entities that are making quite a bit of money on the sales of food in those commissaries. It would be interesting to know how those contracts are awarded. But when you think about how many millions of people are in prison, then there's a lot of money that exchanges hands there. But let's dive into the kinds of foods that are available in the commissaries. Is it possible to get, say, an apple or a banana? In most places, no, absolutely not. Most of the food that's in commissary is snack food, a lot of chips and cookies, honey buns, things like that, candy bars, soda. 
There are some more substantial items, things like ramen, mac and cheese. You can get things like tortillas or sometimes pasta or like tuna in a pouch, things like that. So yeah, it's all processed food. It's not like going to the grocery store. It's very much high in sodium, high in sugar, high in preservatives. And people are very creative in what they can make with those things from commissary. Human beings are incredibly resilient. And I think food is one of the ways that we show that. We can take very little and make something really incredible out of it. But that doesn't mean that people who are in prison are actually making things that are healthy. It might feed their souls for a moment to have made some sort of food treat on their own and to be able to share that with others around them. But at the same time, it's not really feeding their physical health or mental health in the long run. And I think several of the incarcerated people that we've spoken with have said as much. And you have to have money in order to buy these things. And I look down the list of choices. You've got a sample commissary list. This is from the Kansas Correctional Industries commissary menu. And the one food that jumped out at me as being, oh, yeah, this is something I might like, the mixed nuts with peanuts, that was going to cost $3.90. And if you're incarcerated and you're working and making a wage, you could be making anywhere from 19 cents to what, a quarter an hour? You'd have to work quite a while to save up to afford to buy a package of nuts. Absolutely. And so many of the people that we have spoken with in the course of this investigation have told us I couldn't afford commissary. I think about 60% of the people that responded to our initial survey told us that they could not afford to buy things in the commissary. And the people who can afford to buy things are the ones whose families on the outside can put money on their commissary accounts and can afford to help sustain them in that way. And unfortunately, that also replicates a lot of what we see on the outside in terms of people from low-income backgrounds, and especially folks from communities of color, don't necessarily have the same kinds of family support and therefore end up with less food or worse food while they're inside, which basically replicates a lot of what we see on the outside as well. And prisoners are likely to engage in either dangerous or unsavory acts because they are so desperate for additional calories. I think that was another tragic point that I read in this report that I think people really need to understand just how horrific this is. Yeah, absolutely. We heard everything from people who engaged in romantic or sexual relationships with people who could afford to provide them with food for commissary or people who would get involved with gang activity if there was commissary as a reward, or even people who would eat out of the trash when their correctional officer staff would throw away things from their own lunches. Yeah. And I think we should give people an idea of how much one day's allotment of money is to feed a prisoner. California looked like it was one of the, on the high side, they allowed $3.14 per day for three meals. Wyoming, $1.47 a day. That's for all three meals. I can't imagine anything but highly processed commodity foods being able to be served with that kind of budget. Yes, absolutely. And like you pointed out before, food is such a tiny portion of a DOC's overall budget. 
we found in several states that it was only 4%. So that really doesn't track down to a lot per person per meal. And unfortunately, we're really seeing the effects of that. Mm. You also talk about people who are in solitary confinement and food clearly is used as punishment, but the people who are removed from the larger prison population, they get their meal like slipped through a slot. There's no human connection whatsoever. Sometimes the portions might be even less. And that 36 states allow food to be used as a disciplinary measure. You talk about it as being an alternative meal in this thing called neutral loaf, which 18 states allow, which is this unsavory mixture of food that's sliced into a loaf. Is there anything you want to say about these specific incidences of food as punishment? One thing that I think is really interesting is that when you talk to a lot of corrections staff, they'll tell you, you know, oh, we don't use food as punishment. That's against our policy. And indeed, it is against the written policy in so many cases. And then you listen to stories and you look at what's actually happening and you see that this is actually food being used as punishment. If what you're serving people instead of a normal meal is this purposely disgusting loaf of leftovers that are mashed up and baked and, you know, a slice of that is thrown onto a tray, that is food as punishment. It's not anything else. Yeah. And for individuals who are serving these extremely long sentences, truly inhumane sentences, I think the long-term cost to society is exceedingly great. You know, Leslie, we just have a couple of minutes left. And of course, I've got pages of questions and comments, but I do want to give you some time to talk about anything that you in particular want to bring forth from this excellent report. Thank you. Yeah, I think one thing that I'd like to mention is that people have said, well, if the overarching problem is mass incarceration and we're locking up too many people and we're relying on prison as a punishment, how is focusing on food going to make that any better? And my response to that would be food isn't a distraction from all of that. Food is a part of that. And it's almost as if addressing the food is like first aid. We have this huge wound, right, in our society. And in addition to addressing the causes of that, the underlying roots of that, we also have to address what's happening in the immediate sense, which is that people's lives are at risk because of this food. And yes, decarceration and working towards that is incredibly important, and we shouldn't stop doing that. But at the same time, that's not going to change overnight, but food is something that we can change now. This is a problem we can address now. So while we're waiting to end mass incarceration and while we're waiting to free all of the people who should not currently be locked up in cages, addressing this problem of food is, is really a way to help humanize people. It's a way to help, help them regain their sense of physical and mental health. It's a way to help them restore their sense of human dignity. Mm. This is just such an important report, Leslie. I can't thank you enough for it. I want to make it widely available to our listeners and beyond. But we've got to close. And in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hamelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Leslie Sobel. She is a member of Impact Justice. 
and a research fellow for the Food in Prison Project. She is the lead author of an excellent report titled Eating Behind Bars. It explores multiple aspects of the food that people are receiving in prisons. And most importantly, she looks at this as a humanitarian effort. These are our fellow human beings. We hope that they will return to society better than when they left. And we've got to look at food as a first step way to get us there. So Leslie, thank you again so much for your time. Thank you, Melinda. Melinda. 